With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start today's show, here is this morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. In the 1990s, the manager of one of Rwanda's most luxurious hotels found himself in a position he never would have expected, protecting 1,200 refugees from the anti-Tutsi genocide in Rwanda. His name's Paul Rosasabagina. This is a four-star hotel, not a refugee camp. I have no means to protect these people. And if this at all sounds like something you'd see in a movie, well, Hollywood thought so too. We need to help one another. That is the only thing that is keeping us alive. After the war, he was played by Don Cheadle in the 2004 film Hotel Rwanda. But when the house lights turned on and people streamed out of the theater, Paul Rosasabagina's story kept going. This week, that story took a sharp turn. The court finds that they should be found guilty for being part of this terror group, MRCD, FLN. A Rwandan court sentenced Rosasa Begina to 25 years in prison on terrorism-related charges. His supporters say this proves just how far President Paul Kagame is willing to go to silence his critics, a reach that extends right here into Canada. That's what journalist Anjan Sundaram is breaking down with me today. He wrote a book about Rwanda called Bad News, Last Journalists in a Dictatorship. Hi, Anjan. Thank you so much for, for making the time to speak with me today. Hi, uh, Jamie. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get into anything else, I think we should very quickly remind our, our listeners of, of the scene in, in Rwanda in the 1990s. It was, it was a very dark time. And can, can you remind us about the genocide that was this incredibly dark chapter of Rwandan history? Sure, yes. So for many people, you know, Rwanda, they began to know of Rwanda uh, during the genocide in 1994. It was incredibly um, brutal. Uh, around a million people were killed, were estimated to be killed in less than a 100 days. And mm-hmm. that's a rate of killing that's even faster than uh, the Nazis uh, managed in World War Two. And so it was, uh, it was incredibly uh, violent, uh, brutal time. Uh, the main uh, targets of the genocide were Rwanda's minority Tutsi population. And mm-hmm. uh, the scenes were horrific. There were bodies on the street. Uh, and what, what sort of distinguished this genocide was that it was one of the first in the 20th century uh, to be televised. And so you on, on news channels were showing... Uh, bodies on the street and sort of, uh, you know, uh, militias going after people. There's chaos and confusion in the African state of Rwanda tonight and blood in the streets. The crisis was ignited when an airplane carrying the president of Rwanda and the president of neighboring Burundi was shot down. Both men died. Their plane. The leaders were returning from regional peace talks taking place in Tanzania. In a statement broadcast on state radio, the Rwandan government appealed for calm. It has ordered security. If you uh, stated that all hell's breaking loose in Kigali, uh, that would be a reasonably fair uh, statement. During the night, the uh, most 
especially the presidential guard, uh, have uh, gone on a rampage, uh, be it killing, uh, destroying, uh, massacring, and mutilating. And yet the world uh, did very little to intervene and to stop mm-hmm. this genocide. And so that, that double uh, tragedy, I think, was what brought Rwanda to the forefront of many people's minds. And mm-hmm. I would say that you know this genocide was preceded by four years of war. Uh, Rwanda was ruled by a Hutu dictatorship, and uh, many Tutsis grew up in exile, one of them being Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda now. He grew right. up in exile in Uganda. In the late 1980s, Tutsi refugees in Uganda, supported by some moderate Hutus, formed the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, led by Paul Kagame, the current president of Rwanda. Their aim was to overthrow the Hutu president, Juvenar Habyarimana, and secure the right to return to their homeland. Yeah. And, and I want to come back to Kagame in, in just a, a moment. But, but first, let's talk about Paul Rusesa Begina for a moment. He, he was born to a Hutu father and a Tutsi mother. So, some listening might remember his story uh, as he was played by Don Cheadle, as, as I mentioned, in Hotel Rwanda. He got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush. But since his days portrayed in the film, where did his life go after that? He, he got into politics, right? He fled Rwanda just after that. He became a critic of the government of Paul Kagame and founded an opposition party. Right. So Paul Rufisa Begina was, you know, heroic figure from that genocide. He was, as you said, the manager of a luxurious hotel. And he played a part a bit like uh, Schindler uh, during the Holocaust. He sort of, he protected, as a Hutu, uh, he protected uh, many Tutsi, Tutsis from the Hutu, Hutu militias. And so he saved many people's lives. And that became this inspirational story in Hotel Rwanda. Uh, since since the when the movie was released, when Hotel Rwanda was released, Paul Kagame welcomed the movie and invited the director of Hotel Rwanda to Kigali, to Rwandan capital, for a premiere. And uh, Kagame was extremely happy. But then, over the years, uh, Rusesa Begina became a critic of Paul Kagame's dictatorship. And that's when things started to turn sour. And Paul Kagame began to criticize the film, say the film was all based on lies, that Paul Rusesa Begina had, uh, in fact, extorted money from hotel guests and um, and that he was a fraud. And Paul Rusesa Begina has become uh, increasing, had become increasingly vocal, uh, a critic of Paul Kagame, of uh, uh, the dictatorship in Rwanda and the abuses of power. And, and can you take me through... Um some of what Paul Rusa Begina has been saying about Paul Kagame uh, in, in the last several years, you know, essentially, like, why is he such a target for, for the president? He's been he's saying what many academics have been saying for many years, essentially that Paul Kagame's rule has descended into uh, a brutal and repressive dictatorship where people cannot criticize the president. What the president says is the truth. Uh, you know, if, if Paul Kagame says that uh, the country is growing at 8% and that poverty is reducing, then that's what's happening. And all of these things have been proven to various degrees to be false, and yet they're taken and accepted and reported in newspapers and radios in Rwanda as the truth simply because the dictator says so. Rusesa Begina has been criticizing this. And so Paul Rusesa Begina presents a very credible political 
challenge to Paul Kagame for the presidency. And so this is what makes Paul Rosisa Begina particularly dangerous. Rosisa Begina also has a lot of friends abroad in Hollywood, in, in the U.S. government. He's very respected. And so that's why Paul Kagame needed to make sure that, you know, he neutralized the threat from Paul Rosisa Begina. I, I do understand if we could touch on very briefly um, that Rusesa Bagina has also uh, been a proponent of, if if that's a fair word, of, of some more controversial theories around the Rwandan genocide. And I, I wonder if you could just talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. So the two important things to note about the genocide or important for the narrative of the genocide, as we know it today, are... There was a the genocide was triggered by a plane crash, uh, by a shooting down of a plane in Rwanda in Kigali that was carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi. This was in April 1994, and literally the day after this shooting down of this plane, the genocide began. And uh, there's credible evidence that Paul Kagame's forces were re- responsible for that shooting down. The fact is that in Rwanda today you cannot research this. There's also credible evidence, as documented by UN researchers uh, uh, and journalists who've published books uh, recently, including a Canadian journalist called Judy Rever. Uh, there's credible research to show that Paul Kagame was himself responsible for extensive killings, uh, possibly of Hutus. A UN report uh, in Congo uh, classified some of Paul Kagame's killings as possible acts of genocide. It has been a very good week, I think, for the tribunal. Hassan Boubakar Jallo has only been chief prosecutor at the tribunal for a few months. But already, the pressure is on him to have the tribunal look at war crimes that the RPF might have committed under Kagame's leadership. The mandate of the tribunal includes, particularly the prosecutor, the investigation and the prosecution of all offenses committed in Rwanda. By, by either side, by whosoever it is. And that includes alleged offenses, uh, offenses allegedly committed by members of the RPF. And yet in Rwanda today, uh, you cannot research any of this. You can't even mention it. And so uh, Paul Rusesa Begina has mentioned some of these theories, and Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, finds these extremely, extremely infuriating. And so they, he takes them as personal attacks. The genocide is very, very central to Paul Kagame's hold on power. Paul Kagame has cast himself as the savior of Rwanda from the genocide, the man who ended the genocide. And so any anybody who threatens this narrative of him as a savior... Uh, is immediately a target. And why, though, are these claims, I understand why they're so uh, controversial and and, um, infuriating for Kagami, but why are they controversial elsewhere? So uh, General Romeo Dallaire, the United Nations commander in Rwanda, for example, um, has called such claims about the, you know, double genocide uh, from people like Rusibagina, a willful deception. He's saying that these are duped academics, journalists, and other experts who continue to propagate self-serving lies onto the victims, aiming to wreak damage as repugnant as that of the earliest colonialists. Yeah, so I think there's good reason for people to be wary, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think genocides throughout history have been denied often. And so they've been, you know, people, the perpetrators particularly have tried to 
push them under the carpet, you know, deny the evidence, hide the evidence. That said, these allegations should be followed up and should be researched properly. Unfortunately, in Rwanda today, you cannot. I think Rwanda is particularly polarizing as well. Many of the people like General Romeo Dallaire, whom you mentioned, who were there in Rwanda uh, during the genocide and saw the world just take no action to stop the genocide were understandably horrified and I think since then, unfortunately, have taken a biased view uh, that is pro President Paul Kagame, and they're very unwilling to criticize President Paul Kagame because they see him as the man who stopped the genocide. Uh, he won that war, and you know his victory ended the genocide. CFIS-FM. That is part one of this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. We'll have the second part in a moment here on After 9. Hi, this is The Wolfman. Few entertainment genres have captured our imagination and been as successful as the good old-fashioned musical. From their vaudevillian roots to today's blockbusters, musicals have provided generations with a stream of memorable productions, show-stopping performances, and larger-than-life personalities. Join me for a unique adventure as we trip the light fantastic across more than a century of musical theater, from Broadway to the West End and all points in between. On with the show, Sunday afternoons at 2, only on Boomer Radio 93. When Mums the Word hits the stage at Theatre Northwest, you can expect an earful. Written by six women, all of them mothers, Mums the Word features women being asked to describe motherhood. Theatre Northwest is hoping audience members will have the opportunity to share their stories at the end of each performance. Mums the Word is on stage at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre from April 14th to May 4th. Tickets for Mums the Word go on sale October 1st at Theatre Northwest. Crossing one major street in Prince George is safer now thanks to two new crosswalk upgrades. City crews have installed overhead flashing beacon systems on 15th at the Irwin and Allward Street intersections. The brightly flashing signs alert motorists to slow down and yield for crossing pedestrians, including students, visitors to Freeman Park and Studio 2880, hospital patients and workers, and nearby residents. The City of Prince George thanks motorists for their patience during these important traffic safety enhancements and for driving cautiously around road crews. Forecast for Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today, wind from the southwest at 20 gusting to 40 this afternoon and a high of 18. Cloudy tonight, southwest winds becoming light in the evening, a 30% chance of showers over northern sections overnight, a low of 6. For Saturday, cloudy with a 30% chance of showers over northern sections, wind from the south at 20 in the afternoon and a high of 15. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is the second segment from this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. And, and so let's talk about Recessa Bagina's arrest now. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, in 2020, it was very dramatic. He gets on this plane to Burundi to deliver a talk on human rights, and he ends up landing in the capital of Rwanda, Kigali. Uh, and then he's immediately arrested and charged with terrorism-related offenses. And why? Like, what? what... What crimes does the Rwandan government say he committed? Is is it is it all, everything that he's been saying in opposition to Kagame? Is it something else? Prosecutors say he's behind attacks in Rwanda that happened in 2018. 
An armed opposition group called the FLN claimed responsibility. Rusesa Beginner previously told the court he supported the group, but only in a diplomatic role. What, what the reality and what the courts in Rwanda say are two separate things. I mean, critics of Kagame have been accused of uh, uh, sexual abuse, have been accused of uh, uh, corruption, you know, a host of uh, offenses. And that, that, you know, may or may not have any bearing in truth. Paul, yeah, Paul Rusisabekina has for a long time criticized Paul Kagame. And so I think what Paul Kagame did here was uh, conduct a very organized and premeditated rendition of Rusisa Begina by luring him to that region. And then the Rwandan, former Rwandan Minister of Justice uh, went on Al Jazeera to admit that that plane and the agent who lied to Paul Rusisa Begina were paid for by the Rwandan government. So the Rwandan government has taken responsibility for lying to Rusisa Begina and getting him against his will to Rwanda. Uh, the other thing to understand is that Paul Kagame, being a dictator in Rwanda, he has not allowed any peaceful democratic opposition to his rule. You, a string of, of political opponents, you have now Christopher Kayumba, who's on hunger strike. Uh, he's accused of... Uh, uh, sexual abuse, and he he recently formed a political party that challenged Paul Kagame. You have Diane uh, Riguara, who in the last election in 2017 challenged Paul Kagame, and she had uh, misogynistic photographs of her circulate on Rwandan social media. A, a string of people, Rwandans, very brave Rwandans, uh, have tried to challenge Paul Kagame peacefully, politically, but they end up facing situations like this. They end up being arrested, having misogynistic statements against them, accusations taken to court, uh, some, sometimes end up in prison. And so uh, many groups, Rwandan groups, who would like to see a change in Rwanda, a change away from dictatorship, have taken up arms. And there are peaceful groups, there are armed groups, all of which are challenging Kagame, like you know happens in any dictatorship. You have armed groups that, that form, that try to depose the dictator uh, through military means, because peaceful means have failed. And Paul Rusisa Begina uh, formed a political party to challenge Paul Kagame, and has gone on the record saying that he you know, supported even, he, he condoned uh, some of the uh, military groups that were challenging Paul Kagame as well. He, he did say at his pre-trial hearing, worth noting that uh, Paul, Paul Rosasa Begina said that, uh, you know, while he acknowledged he backed this armed wing of a political party, his goal wasn't t terrorism. You know, I, you know now now uh, he's going to be sentenced to 25 years in prison. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming that that doesn't surprise you, right? No, I think to anyone, any serious observer of Rwanda, there's, uh, it doesn't surprise, uh, it's not a surprising uh, sentence. Uh, once you're in a Rwandan court and you're, you know, accused essentially of, of opposing or criticizing President Paul Kagame, it's pretty clear that you're going to stay in prison for some time or end up dead. You know, and Jim, before we go today. I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about transnational um, uh, repression here. So so what's happening outside the borders of, of Rwanda? Um, because we have heard from critics, including those who live in Canada, 
um, about what's happening to them here. So for example, we heard from David Himbara, Canadian economist. For years, he says he's dodged surveillance and, and threats from Rwanda because he criticizes the government that he used to work for. The first time I went to police, Toronto police, and he says, definitely do not get involved in Rwandan community affairs. Because they said, they know. He says, the likelihood of someone coming from Rwanda to shoot you is zero. But the likelihood of someone putting something in your glass of water or juice at a wedding or at a party, that is very high. So avoid that. Other Rwandans have shown up to classes that he was lecturing at. A friend of his once once told um, by Rwandan officials was once told by Rwandan officials to find a way to shut him up. Even families are split in the middle. Some members of my family blame me for being outspoken. They think that I'm the one who has put them into trouble. Uh, and so... You know, this does sound like a pretty resource-intensive campaign with global sort of tentacles, right? And, and how does the Rwandan government keep people outside the country in, in line as well? Yeah, I, th- I think you're very right to bring this up. I think it's extraordinary that Canadian citizens are being silenced inside Canada, uh, you know, are not able to exercise their fundamental right, free speech, The Rwandan government conducts these surveillance operations through their embassies, surveillance and intimidation. Uh, The Rwandan government has sort of, it's it's common knowledge uh, among those of us who work in uh, circles that criticize Polkagame that, you know, our phones have been hacked, our phones have been tapped, I've had to sort of reset my phone. Uh, When my book came out in New York, NYPD counterterrorism sent armed guards to my talk because they, you know, judged that that there was a serious threat against me uh, from the Rwandan government. And Scotland Yard put me on a counterterrorism hotline where my landline, I just had to dial a number and I didn't even have to explain. They said, just dial the number and we'll come and get you because we know exactly the threat that you face and who is threatening you, the Rwandan government. We know their methods. And so you don't even have to explain anything on the phone. Just call this number and we'll come and get you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Uh, it's, it's, it sounds so stressful and, and, and awful. And, and I wonder if you think the international community and Canada is, is, do, is doing enough to protect the people that live in their borders. Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't think so. When I was in Canada uh, to release my book, uh, I did write to the Canadian security services, the police, and I got no response. Uh, whereas in New York and London, the security services took the threat against me very seriously. I think in Canada, for whatever reason, uh, they underestimate the threat that Kagame poses to their citizens. And... Um, uh, and, and and many Canadians have, in fact, faced threats. And uh, and unfortunately, Canada lends legitimacy to Paul Kagame and to the Rwandan government, and makes it more difficult to to counter the dictatorship that is uh, the repressive dictatorship that is currently present there. Okay, and thank you so much for this. Uh, this was really really interesting. I, I learned I learned a lot. It feels really important. So so thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. Appreciate it.
right. So before we go today, we did ask Global Affairs Canada and the Department of Justice what they were doing about the phenomenon of transnational repression. They referred us to Public Safety Canada, who did not reply by our deadline. That is all for today. Frontburner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcast. The show is produced this week by Imogen Burchard, Simi Bassey, Katie Toth, Ali Janes, and Derek Vanderweyck. Our sound design was by Matt Cameron, Austin Pomeroy, and Jennifer Rowley. Our music is by Joseph Chabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Frontburner is Nick McKay-Blocos. And I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you on Monday. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is this morning's Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch the Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When we return, we will have the Friday panel that's coming up in a moment here on After 9. Due to current pandemic issues, the Best Damn Music Festival has been postponed until next August. Tickets for this year's event are valid for next year, and purchasers who retain their tickets will be entered to win a VIP upgrade. Ticket holders who are unable to attend next year's dates can request a refund through Tickets North at the CN Center box office through October 1st. For questions or arrange for your refund, call 236-423-1157. The Community Arts Council is excited to announce Studio Fair Marketplace. This unique event will feature arts and craft vendors from the Prince George region and beyond participating in what may be the largest Christmas gift fair in local history. The Studio Fair Marketplace will be at CN Center with free admission. Visitors will be asked to make a donation at the door with all donations supporting the Community Arts Council and its many programs. The Community Arts Council Studio Fair Marketplace, November 5th, 6th, and 7th at CN Center. Support PG is celebrating its first anniversary by giving you a chance to win. Download and print the Summer Vacation Passport from supportpg.ca, then shop locally through Tuesday to collect stickers. You can win one of three staycation packages from Tourism Prince George. Follow Support PG on Facebook and Instagram or visit supportpg.ca to stay up to date. Get shopping today to increase your chances. The Support PG Passport for your summer vacation on through Tuesday from Support PG. Vantage Point is more than just a not-for-profit resource center. It also provides valuable support services. Their executive performance management service provides customized services to support your board in developing an executive director performance plan. This will help your organization identify the key benefits of your executive director's performance so you can provide effective feedback. Find more information and discover the full line of services offered by Vantage Point through the services link at thevantagepoint.ca. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Rez Krebs. Here we've got uh, Art Betke, the usual panel, Eric Alpert, uh, Herb Martin, and... uh, and Peter Allen, sorry, I usually have them written down. And, and Trudy, uh, Trudy's going to be joining us a little bit later. So I know we've been uh, we've been beating this horse for a few weeks now, but we do have to have a final couple of words on this election. Um, and, and it can't be that it shouldn't have been called. Uh, <laughs> that's the only rule, because <laughs> everyone feels the same way. So I'd love to hear. Um, maybe we'll start with Herb. You know, hopes and fears for this new 
for this new election. What, what do you think that we're going to actually get out of it, and what do you think is going to be the worst thing that might happen? Go ahead, Herb. Uh, I think the good thing about it is it's, it's basically a Mexican standoff. Um, no one really, you know, won this election uh, outright, so uh, they have to they have to work together. And I think that'll um, and nobody wants an election soon. Um, so I think everyone's all the parties will work together, and hopefully we'll get uh, some positive results out of it. Um, the worst thing that is going to come out of this is um, um, I think that. Uh, uh, there's there's some glaring um, uh, problems with our electoral system. I mean, you've got 824,000 uh, PPC votes across Canada, not one seat. Uh, you're looking at um, 59% of registered voters voted. Only 19% of eligible voters voted. So there's there's some there's some glaring problems there that we have to address. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, this morning there was a PPC guy in Ontario who got himself um, arrested in a Tim Hortons in Ontario, uh, he claiming to be the new Rosa Parks because um, he wasn't wearing a mask. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is what happens when people are, are disenfranchised. They start doing crazy stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. Actually, it's uh, it's actually the, the the whole that whole movement is actually about people not having access to power. I think, Eric, what do you think? What's your what well, are your hopes? Well, you know, it's uh, I think that form of Robbie Burns' best laid plans and ways and men oftentimes go awry. <laughs> so that's what happened in this case. The problem is that what we've done is it's like we put it through a photocopy machine and just duplicated it. So now. Now we're going to have uh, three or four uh, leadership reviews, and uh, you know that's going to put us into this two-bit politicking for another two years. We just came out of two years of it before that. This is not good for the country. We can't be going around spending all our time and effort and energy in uh, trying to get elected and, and just be always politics, politics, politics. There's more to life than politics. And so we have to, and that's one good reason for having a majority government. You know, you've got, at least you can hope for four years. This type of thing here is just, it's just unbelievable. And, uh, and two years from now, we're going to go through it again? You know, I think one of the reasons, you know, that, that really kind of threw some people off stride, and I was awful surprised at that Australian-British-American defense pact, Pack, we weren't even included in it. We were sidelined or blindsided, and we're pretending that you know it doesn't matter. It matters. Those are the two of our biggest allies historically, the United States and Britain, and they signed an agreement with Australia, and we weren't at the table. And that comes because we were too busy doing other things. Yeah, it's possible. I, I, I wonder about, do you folks think that we might be able to hold off on uh, some of this politicking? Like one of my one of my biggest fears was that, you know, infighting in the CPC would leave to no effective opposition. Uh, do you think that we'll be able to hold off on a leadership review, or do you think that, that they're going to, as they, as they often do, do you think the Conservative Party is going to eat itself? Well, I can't see them. Uh, they can't hold off on it because, you know, they... The system, even for for electing uh, your leaders, I mean, they got two or three different systems. You know, they, <clears throat> the the second guy uh, or the bottom guy drops off. The second guy drops yeah, off. You right put now, in the second yeah. choice, third choice, fourth choice. Christ, it's, you know, it's 
mathematically impossible to figure out what's going on. Just have a vote. Are you for this guy or against it? And that's it. And that's, you know, and then we carry on and, and, and do some more business. It's, I don't know. It's just not a good idea to be into politics all the time because it's nonproductive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, you can keep electing leaders constantly and get nowhere, right? I loved the, uh, there was a political cartoon I saw. It was like a bicycle race, but everyone was riding a stationary bicycle, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Peter, what do you think? Hopes and fears? Uh, well, you know, like, as we know, like, the, you know, this epidemic has uh, exposed the crisis in healthcare, And, uh, you know, what I believe that what we need is increased funding for the, you know, public nonprofit health care, daycare, and, and seniors care. Because when you look at it, you know, like, you go back to the 1990s there, that's when the Paul Martin and Kretchen government... Uh, what they did basically was they cut back the health transfers to the provinces. Like it used to be a 50-50 arrangement, and it's been reduced to the federal government now contributes only 22%. And as a result, since the 1990s, uh, we've had uh, a crisis in the health care system. So well, what I'm hoping for is that um, there will be an increased, uh, increased funding in that, uh, in that whole sector. And uh, secondly, I, what I'm hoping for is that there will be a, a full review of what worked and didn't work in terms of the COVID-19 response. I think that's very important that there be a summing up of that process. And the third thing I'd have hoped for would be to initiate a, an electoral reform process like Herb is talking about uh, that issue uh, that is democratic and that involves the population right to have in full discussion. In terms of what I'm dreading, uh, I'm concerned right at this time, like, Eric uh, pointed to it at a time when uh, the U.S. is uh, shifting its focus in terms of foreign policy, that uh, we don't get more under the thumb of um, U.S. military alliances. Like, I, I think that there's a problem right now that we're under the thumb of um, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. military far too much. So it means that we get dragged into wars by whoever, you know, whatever reckless leader is in the power in the U.S. at this time, so uh, I'm hoping that uh, we, we won't go that way, but I don't, uh, uh, I don't have my hopes up. I, I believe we need our own independent foreign policy, uh, and, uh, but I'm not confident that we're going to get it. Right. I mean, the, you know, on the health care issue, I did hear the premiers had met earlier this week in order to demand an increase to 35%, so not quite at your 50% level, but certainly an increase, yeah. Um, Art, you've got the last word on hopes and fears, because we're still waiting for Trudy. Well, no hopes, really. Uh, I think we lost all hopes with the result of the election, from my point of view. Uh, what I fear, and what I'm pretty certain will come, is the Liberals will reintroduce Bill C-10 and C-36, which basically ends freedom of speech, uh, and, and that will help uh, keep the Liberals in power as long as they want, and the NDP and the Bloc will support those uh, bills. They're not happy about free speech either. Um, the uh, Liberals will also go more extreme on climate change, which will have a devastating effect on the economy and zero effect on climate. And they'll continue the massive spending and borrowing and printing of money, which will drive up inflation, which will hurt all of us except for the rich. 
the NDP will continue to support the Liberals like they did in the past two years, and they'll probably be able to stay in power for four years. I don't think we need to see an election in two years because uh, they'll just keep going the way they were. Um, as far as the Conservatives, well, I, I, they're, they're just in the hinterland. They're going to stay there because Aaron O'Toole... Uh, he's uh, what they used to call a red Tory. He pretended to be much more conservative while running for the leadership. But once he had it, he uh, transformed the Conservative Party into the old progressive Conservative Party of Joe Clark and Brian Mulroney. Uh, that's kind of what he figured he had to do to win, but it, that never works. It's never worked before. It will never work in the future. It just means the party is likely to stay in the hinterland for the foreseeable future, unless maybe Pierre Polyevre becomes leader. He's got a lot of common sense. Now, if O'Toole had actually managed to win a minority, it would have been pretty much impossible for him to form the kind of partnership with the minor parties that the Liberals can. Uh, no matter how much O'Toole agrees with their uh, platforms, uh, they still refuse to admit him to the left lefty club. So. It'd be very little for him to get anything done. He'd have been in office, but not in power. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that he might have actually had some common cause with the bloc. Um, but, you know, on the point of of whether or not we're going to have a, an election in the next two years, I'd love to hear folks what folks think about whether or not this government has learned a lesson. Are we going to continue to have this these ridiculous, uh, as, as I think Eric was calling it, politicking, um, is that going to continue, or are we going to? Do you think that we'll actually hit a nice four-year kind of stretch of of stable minority government? That's the question I, I've got. Well, they're always politicking, but after this last debacle of uh, holding an early, unnecessary election, I think they may tend to go the full four years. <laughs> okay, we're going to hold you to that. <laughs> I won't guarantee it. <laughs> it's time for a break. We'll be back soon. The NRESI colloquiums are back with in-person attendance. The next colloquium is today at 3.30 with Dr. Travis Gerwing, ecologist team leader with Gulf Islands National Park Reserve at Parks Canada. Dr. Gerwing's topic will be ecosystem integrity monitoring, my journey from UNBC to Gulf Islands National Park Reserve. That's the next NRESI colloquium featuring Dr. Travis Gerwing from Parks Canada's Gulf Islands National Park Reserve, 3.30 today in room 8. 164 at UNBC. Exposed Wildlife Conservancy in association with the Grizzly Bear Foundation has produced a documentary film on the plight of Alberta's grizzly bears. The majestic grizzly is an iconic symbol of the wild and a cherished part of Western Canada's cultural identity. Help save the grizzly by making a donation at exposedwildlifeconservancy.org or grizzlybearfoundation.com. And be sure to check out the new documentary In the Crosshairs. The Road to Recovery for Alberta's Threatened Grizzly Bears, now available on YouTube. The BC Schizophrenia Society's annual general meeting and AGM education series is set for Saturday, October 2nd. Available free via Zoom, this year's event includes a presentation on understanding privacy and information sharing legislation in relation to the mental health system, followed by a Q&A. For more information and to register, visit bcss.org. Come together, the BC Schizophrenia Society Society's annual general meeting, Saturday, October 2nd, from 1 to 3.30, through bcss.org. Forecast from Environment Canada. 
Mainly cloudy today. Wind from the southwest at 20 gusting to 40 this afternoon and a high of 18. Cloudy tonight. Southwest winds becoming light in the evening. A 30% chance of showers over northern sections overnight, a low of 6. For Saturday, cloudy with a 30% chance of showers over northern sections. Wind from the south at 20 in the afternoon and a high of 15. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, well, I'm kind of glad we can put that election to bed now and start talking about other uh, other actual issues here. Um, I wanted to uh, bring up this $1.1 billion lawsuit against the RCMP alleging bribery and corruption uh, in, in a drugs unit, um, and then someone who, who blew the whistle, uh, they're actually... Um, alleging uh, harassment, etc., claiming PTSD. I mean, we have plenty of horrific stories of sexual assault and harassment in the, in, in the RCMP. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether um, Canada has come to the point where we no longer have use for a national, uh, well, a federal, at least, police force. I mean, both Quebec and Ontario have their own pr- provincial police forces. Uh, what you know, the, we know the RCMP was created in order to, as a tool, uh, to colonize the West. Um, what do we think here? Is what do people think about um, having a national police force? It, does having a national police force actually reduce the likelihood of, of corruption, bribery, sexual assault, all those nasty things, or are we seeing this? Um, is it, it, does it actually increase it, given the, the size of that institution? I'm going to give Trudy the first uh, opportunity here because she just walked in the door. <laughs> I Golly, I don't know that it has anything to do with the size of the police force. Um, I, my, my whistleblower protection is always hard uh, because it looks great on paper, but if the culture doesn't support whistleblowing, um, it's virtually impossible to do so. Having said that, it is important to have it, and I'm not sure how robust ours is, so that's probably something that we should be looking into. Um, And uh, part of the law requires for justice to be seen. I mean, my fellow panelists here will certainly agree with that. And I think sometimes we just don't see justice, and I think that erodes trust, not only for the public, but also for the people working in especially a large institution like the RCMP. So we're talking, uh, you know, whether or not we need better whistleblowing legislation, but, you know, when the whistle is being blown, it seems that those people get targeted. Um, I'm not sure if the legislation would change that. That's my question, I guess. Uh, Eric, do you have any thoughts on, you know, whether the RCMP is is overdue for being dismantled? Uh, Well, the only thing is we don't have anything to replace it. It's kind of part of the glue that holds this country together. Like the RCMP police, uh, Northwest Territories, most uh, native reserves, uh, 10, or sorry, 8 out of the 10 provinces. And of course, like you mentioned, is the two provincial provinces. BC had a provincial uh, police up until 1950 or something. So, so there is some, there is some good in having a, a, a national police force. The problem comes in is, you know, it's a paramilitary force, or at least it used to be, and I think in some ways it still is. So who investigates them? You know, <laughs> uh, like we pay, Prince George, we pay, uh, I think, at least 80% of the cost of the police at Prince George, maybe 90 
and the province pays the rest, and the feds pay, pay very little, but they call all the shots for the municipalities. Maybe we need provincial, some sort of a provincial board to investigate all police, regardless of the provincial or federal or whatever, <clears throat> so they don't investigate themselves. But it's uh, it's a pretty big bear to wrestle. I, I just don't know if we could ever get it done. Yeah, I mean, well, Surrey's been successful right there, actually. In November, they'll have their first uh, their first municipal police force on boots on the ground. There's also lots of calls amongst First Nations to have their own police forces. And the, I guess the only real long-term example of that is the Nishnabiaski police force out in Ontario that hasn't killed a single uh, person uh, in their entire 30- or 40-year uh, run, which is kind of impressive considering that they police First Nations. Um, Peter, what do you think? What do we have in store for the RCMP? Well, I think the you know the, the fundamental issue is uh, not how big or whether something is national or provincial or municipal. What, in my opinion, what the issue is is uh, what powers these police forces have. You know, whether they're RCMP or whether they're spy agencies like CSIS. And, or the Canadian security establishment. You know, because especially since uh, 9-11, you know, police forces all over the place have dramatically increased their powers, and uh, that uh, threatens the civil liberties of, uh, of everyone, uh, whether the people are on the left or right or whatever part of the uh, political spectrum. You know, like we have these bills that were put together, like Bill C-51, Bill C-59, even the Bill C-10, right, and, and so on. So that um, my, my concern is about that, that we have uh, police forces, but they're increasing their power, whereas uh, people, citizenry and all that, is more and more disempowered. And, um, you know, we have a situation where there's more surveillance, where privacy rights are regularly uh, violated, the censorship, you know, with the state and big tech working together. You know, so it's a whole question of individual and collective rights versus the power of the state, and I think... Uh, you know, we have to look, be really cognizant of that in this uh, in this day and age, in the light, of, in, in the wake of the 9-11 thing, but also in the wake of our digitization of everything, right, which makes it so much easier to uh, uh, violate the uh, privacy rights of people. Yeah, it's, th- these are good points. Both Eric and Peter seem to be pointing to the fact that we've got no one kind of, no one, no watching, no one's watching the watchman. What do you think, Art, do we have a way to kind of police the police here? Uh, if there is, I don't really know what it is, because um, there's always got to be somebody who's the ultimate watcher, and who would that be? Um, there is this, uh, the old saying about absolute power corrupting absolutely, so, you know, at, at the moment, the, the RCMP have an awful lot of power. They uh, supposedly answer to the civilian government, but, you know, just how much of that is, is possible uh, to actually do um, if we do get rid of uh, the national police then we're going to have to have all provincial police forces and uh, will that be much different I don't think so I know back uh, when the NDP were first selected in BC in 72 they proposed a provincial police force but that never got off the ground so I don't know what's going to happen or, you know I really don't have any answers here Okay, Herb, you got any? You, you're going to lead us on towards the the next wave of uh, maybe citizen policing or something. You have, you have some ideas here? 
Well, I've, I've lived and worked uh, both uh, in Ontario and Quebec as well as BC, and um, both the OPP and QPP have, um, have their share of scandals. So I don't think uh, a, a provincial police force is really the answer. You do have to have uh, oversight and um, uh, a, lo- you know, a lot of opportunity for people to, um, to report things. So, uh, you know, you've, you've, got to, you've got to have checks and balances. Um, I think, if anything, uh, national police force is, uh, is under more scrutiny, perhaps, than local or, or provincial uh, police forces. So I, think, uh, I don't think uh, decentralizing is the, is the right idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the Aquasasne uh, uh, police have had their share of problems. They had a um, uh, police uh, cruiser uh, torched, uh, uh, I think, within the last year over um, uh, conflicts over policing um, marijuana um, Outfits uh, there. Uh, there's there's an ongoing problem there with with smuggling across the border. So yeah, no, it's the, the small is not necessarily better when it comes to policing. That's an interesting point. All right, well we got to take a break and then we'll be back talking a little bit more about uh, vaccine passports. Canada Revenue Agency and Service Canada are teaming up to offer a live webinar on seniors' benefits and credits. Join them Thursday, October 7th at 1.30 to discover the benefits, credits, and deductions that you may be eligible for. You'll also learn tips on communicating with Service Canada for best results. The Canada Revenue Agency and Service Canada Seniors Benefits and Credits Presentation, 1.30, Thursday, October 7th. Find the registration link on the events page at cfisfm.ca. The City of Prince George is seeking applications for grants that help creative residents and organizations initiate or sustain great ideas, events, and projects. The MyPG Community Grants assist not-for-profit groups and other community organizations to develop and implement innovative initiatives that help to make Prince George a great community. Full details are available through the Grants and Financial Assistance link under City Services at PrinceGeorge.ca. The application deadline for the MyPG Community Grants is October 15th. The North Central Seniors Association is back in operation with weekly activities. Take part in Tai Chi, Scrabble, or play pool on Wednesdays in the basement of the College Heights Baptist Church. On Friday, it's art, or stop by the Columbus Community Center on Thursdays for yoga. Activities are scheduled from 10 to noon. The association is following current provincial guidelines for masks, sanitizing, distancing, and proof of vaccination to keep participants safe and the center open. The North Central Seniors Association. Check them out online at ncsapg.bravehost.com. The second annual Cantonese Language Telethon for Alzheimer's is Saturday, November 13th. Broadcast on Fairchild Television, all donations made will be matched to a maximum of $65,000. Donations of $50 or more are eligible to receive a limited edition, locally handmade telethon for Alzheimer's pouch, while donations of $100 or more will receive a copper line antibacterial mask pouch while supplies last. The telethon for Alzheimer's, 8 p.m. Saturday, November 13th, on Fairchild Television. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. So considering that we've got this, this terrible issue happening over in Alberta with requests for federal aid in order to deal with their, their COVID crisis, I mean, we have a similar crisis happening here in the north with uh, ICU beds full um, and and people having to be shipped to other regions, they've they've shifted how, you know, maternity wards where where people are going for their maternity uh, requirements, etc., in in hospitals around the region, um, and then we saw 
in both Alberta and BC, this increase in uh, vaccinations after the uh, vaccine passport came in. And I just wanted to revisit this. We did discuss vaccine passports before they actually were even really brought in as a as a policy measure. And there was, although it wasn't consensus, there was a plurality of opinion that said, "Hey, that's a, that's actually, you know, a step too far for the for the uh, for the government to require people to get these, these vaccine passports." But it may actually end up being a useful public policy measure to change human behavior and increase vaccination, considering that what we're seeing is now a a uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. So I just love to hear how folks are thinking about this in light of kind of new evidence uh we'll start with peter peter do you have uh, any any thoughts on va- the vaccine passport how it's been rolled out and whether you think it's going to actually um w- whether the infringement on our individual liberties is worth it given that we've seen an increase in vaccinations well i'm not against vaccine passports in themselves right under you know certain conditions and so on right and i understand you know they, they can be uh and they, I think they are effective in getting more people to, to get vaccinated. But what I would have liked to have seen is a more fuller public discussion and consultation uh, about what measures were necessary, rather than just have uh, rule by decree. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, to bring people along, right? If we're going to go with uh, vaccine passports, uh, aim to bring people along. And we look at the fact that... Uh, we had this election, right? If we can organize that election, we can organize uh, uh, processes and all this to bring people along and, and try to decrease the sharp divisions, you know, pro and con, mm-hmm. right? And, and look at it more from the point of view, okay, how do we solve this problem? How do we consult with the business people, with the employees, with the unions and so on, right? And aim to bring people along because the easiest thing to do is, is rule by decree, you know, for governments, right? And... Uh, so I, I, I would, uh, you know, not, I'm not ruling out vaccine passports or whatever, right? I, I think that they, they can play a role, right? But I do believe we also need to have this other public discussion, consultation, to bring, to bring everyone along to whatever solutions we, we, we put forward. Right on. Art, what do you think? Do you think that a, a public discussion would have kind of eased the way into this? Or do you think it's just a step too far in terms of individual liberties? No, it wouldn't have eased their way in. The, the people on either side will would stick to their uh, positions. Their beliefs are pretty strongly rooted. Uh, there are some fears of people for uh, from adverse effect, effects of the vaccination, especially uh, should be noted as the young people uh, uh, under 18 are practically immune from it. Uh, and uh, one report I saw that they have a greater chance of dying from the effects of the vaccine than they do from uh, the COVID itself. Um, the way the passports are done, uh, you know, I don't know that it, it's going to make any difference, really. Um, I see this Delta variant uh, wherever it hit, uh, when it hit places before it came to us. Uh, it, it hit real strong, lots of... Uh, in new infections, a uh, very uh, big, fast rise in uh, hospitalizations and that. And then an equal uh, drop in new infections quite shortly thereafter. So uh, it might be just, you know, something that's totally unnecessary in, in the overall scheme of things. Um, the one thing I 
did notice uh, in Israel uh, they gave uh, vaccine passports to those who, uh, all of those who have recovered from COVID, but uh, Northern Health or BC will not. Uh, I tried because I've recovered and they refused to give me one. Oh, that's interesting because there was something about if you've had COVID in the last 90 days. I can't remember what document this was, but that's an interesting point. Uh, Trudy, what do you think? Do you think that these, these vaccine passports are a useful public policy option or do you think that they're, they're a step too far? Well, I will agree with the, uh, the other panelists most, uh, mostly. Like, I think it's an unneeded step and, and it is a step too far at this point. Um, if there were so many things done wrong at the very beginning of the pandemic, and, and I know occasionally you heard something hopeful from public officials, but, um, for instance, uh, the, when you're working and living in the resource sector or in the rural areas and you hear that a vaccine will be coming along and then you see the process where they're rolled out and you see that you have to make an appointment, well, that is an immediate impossibility for most people working, especially in oil and gas, um, because your life does not revolve. <laughs> you cannot make an appointment. You do not make an appointment for anything. Um, if they had had assured that sector, especially that we will make this work for you, um, it would have been respectful. Because, and I think that is the, the what we've seen is a lack of respect for rural and remote people, and especially those working in the resource sector, and that's why the kickback on on the on the passport. Yeah, that's that's a true thing. I mean. The communications around COVID itself have been a real problem all the way through. I don't think we've seen enough of it being explained to people. Sorry, Herb and Eric, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to leave it here. Uh, we've got a couple of we got diverse opinions. Let's say that on the COVID vaccine passport. Thanks, everybody. That's your After Nine show for uh, this Friday. Have a great weekend. After Nine is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. This is Community Radio 93.1 CFIS-FM Prince George proudly supported by local businesses